0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
1: At com.
2: Welcome to Trillions, I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas.
3: Eric, in Business Week recently, we um, had an interview and story with SEC Commissioner Gary Ginsler, which you know I sort of helped initiate, and the, one of the main things that I just wanted to understand was what the SEC is going to do about uh, a potential Bitcoin ETF. What about his comments resonated with you?
2: Yeah, so we've been tracking this for, oh, seven years now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I call it the Kentucky Derby for ETF nerds. Uh, Since the Winklevoss filed in 2013, I believe it was, when Bitcoin was trading at $99, by the way, um, all these ETFs have been filed with the SEC. And, you know, when you look at what really has taken place over those years, it's all been ETFs that would track Bitcoin like the way GLD tracks gold. So that would be a physically backed, even though people mock me for saying physically on Twitter, but it's physically backed as you can get. In other words, it would store the Bitcoin and track the spot price the way GLD tracks gold. However, uh, Gensler has come in and and we thought he would be a little more lenient on Bitcoin because he was an expert in it, um, but he has come in and really been a little concerned about approving physically backed Bitcoin ETFs because they are filed under the Securities Act of 1933, which is a looser rule than the 1940 Act, which is a more has more protections. That's what all your mutual funds and most ETFs are registered under. Uh, so there's a lot more protections in there. And I think he feels more comfortable if an ETF that tracked Bitcoin were filed under there. So the only way to go through the 40 act and be Bitcoin is to use futures. What happened in the days after we published that story? Yeah. So since he said that and the story came out, there's been, I believe there's now five uh, Bitcoin ETFs that are now filed that would track futures under the 40 act. So there's almost like a new Kentucky Derby forming in the shadow of the bigger one. And it sounds like that's what's, you know, if all goes well and he is a man of his word, it We'll probably see these futures ETFs approved uh, in November, um, as early as November, at least. And uh, that's what we're going to get. So we should really look into how they work. And we have two people on today who literally run Bitcoin futures strategies into fund structure. So I think we could get a real inside look at how they're going to work and the pros and cons of them. Okay, so joining us for this episode,
3: Steve Hawkins of Horizon ETFs. He's coming back on. You may remember him from the Shroom episode a couple months ago. And then Simeon Hyman at ProShares, who just a couple weeks ago launched one of these future uh, strategies. This time on Trillions, a look into the future of Bitcoin futures ETFs. Simeon, Steve, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me again, man. Okay, Simeon, I want to start with you because this your, your product came out literally just a couple of weeks ago. How did you come up with this idea? Because it was something that you put in motion, obviously, uh, months ago.
4: Well, we've actually been, uh, you know, focused on the on the Bitcoin space for quite a while. Um, but we did indeed. We're very proud. A couple of weeks ago, to be the first to market to bring the first um, Bitcoin exposure in a mutual fund. Its ticker BTCFX. That's our Bitcoin Strategy Pro Fund. We have both pro shares ETFs and pro funds mutual funds uh, at our organization. Uh, And this is indeed a strategy that utilizes futures for exposure to Bitcoin and puts that in a 40 act mutual fund, as Eric was indicating. And I always like to be careful with SEC language. The strategy was allowed to come to market. Remember, the SEC doesn't approve anything. They allow things to come to market. But we were really excited to be
2: first on this one. And so let me ask you how this works, right? So this filing is called a Bitcoin strategy fund, which is what all of the new filings are sort of called. And they're all active, right? So this is an active strategy. How does it, a, a typical futures ETF, like um, you know, natural gas or something, would take the front two months probably, and then just try to roll them constantly to keep exposure. Does this go beyond those front two months? Does it use other funds? Like some of these uh, uh, filings are saying they can use futures and or other funds, like presumably a Canadian Bitcoin fund or something. Um, So can you just really take us through how the strategy works and what it holds? Sure. So um,
4: the basic intent is to use the front month contracts for exposure. And the benefit of that historically is that the correlation volatility and beta of those front month contracts to spot Bitcoin is really high. Now, we are an active fund. So that means we do have some ability around the margin to manage the role. You know, you, you've got a role from at the end of the month, you got to roll to the next month. So we have some ability as an active fund to say, "Oh, we see a lot of liquidity today. We're going to roll a little more than we intended, a little less tomorrow." And there is a little bit of a room around the edges to think about, you know, where the collateral behind the margin, the uh, the uh, uh, the futures contracts are invested.
3: But still, the primary intent for the exposure is to be invested in those front month contracts. So how's it going so far? Because obviously this is something that, as Eric said, he's been watching for seven years. There's been a ton of people interested in it. You come out with something that is a close approximation of what everybody's gonna be uh, uh, moving towards and instant feedback, how's it going?
4: Uh, It's going pretty well from our perspective. We've seen the flow started to come in. Uh, and uh, look, it's also been a period where where you know Bitcoin is on the rise, so that brings some extra eyeballs. And uh, the fund is doing what it's supposed to do, and we're seeing some nice flows.
2: And um, I just want to get wonky real quick. I know Steve's waiting in the wings, but we just got to get through this mutual fund real quick. Um, this mutual fund, right? So a lot of the filings that are coming into the SEC will say something along the lines of, "We're going to track futures and potentially some other funds." Uh, That whole Bitcoin. And I guess that and I think some of you mentioned OTCs, OTC trusts, which would mean GBTC. Does this one hold any of those? Was that in the language? And do we think that Gensler will actually filter out ones that have that? And because now we're seeing filings come in that just say just futures. Um, And there's some talk that those are the ones he'll approve. Any thoughts on all that?
4: So I I don't want to sort of guess as to what the SEC might do or what they're sort of signaling. But, you know, back to my earlier point, you know, because we are active, that means we do have some ability to think about how the cash is invested, particularly the margin behind those those contracts. So we can use a few things other than cash. Again, it's not the the dominant intent of the strategy The the strategy, you know, per its prospectus indicates uh, a focus on those front run trap uh, contracts, but there's a little bit of
2: ability to think about where the, uh, where the cash is sitting. And just to be clear, the 1940 act requires funds that hold securities. Whereas you can fall into the 33 act and not hold securities and Bitcoin isn't a security, right? So you file into the 40 act, because you're not, futures aren't securities either, but you get the margin and you buy treasuries with them. And then presumably that's what you're holding. Therefore you get through. Am I right on that or am I missing anything? So I, I'm, I'm going to focus
4: on, I think what's important to the investor in the distinction between the 40 and the 33 Act. Because uh, for, for folks who are tuning in, uh, 33 the 33 Act is a common structure for commodity exposure as compared to the 40 Act structure, which by these are named for the year in which they were were put in place, 1933 and 1940. The key distinction as an investor, there is a real benefit to being in a 40 Act, and that is perhaps most importantly, the avoidance of the annoying K-1. Most 33 Act funds will generate a K-1. You got to deal with that when you file your taxes. When you're in forty x space, you get a plain old ten ninety nine. So that's probably the most salient difference from an investor's perspective.
3: Okay, Steve, I wanna bring you in here. Um, because in addition to to the shroom conversation that we've had with you, you're also in the Bitcoin space, which basically sounds like a pretty fun job. Uh, how do you get what's your yeah, read on the whole thirty three marijuana? Yeah, okay. Marijuana too. <laughs> so what, what's your read on the thirty three forty acts and what's your distinction?
5: Well, I mean, I would I would just step back for a second and, and look at it from our perspective. So we launched our Bitcoin futures index tracking ETF back in April this year. We were in a race with a few other, um, I would say, digital. Let's call it digital currency, uh, Eric, from a digital, uh, not physical asset perspective. Um, so we had our synthetic futures based product. They had their uh, digital asset holding the physical digital currency themselves, and we really thought our regulators in Canada were actually going to go down the same route as what the SEC has said. And so we believed that we were going to be able to get the first Bitcoin ETF to market here in North America using futures as the underlying asset class rather than the physical digital currency. We just didn't really think that they could get there on the market making and all of the sort of issues around liquidity that could occur directly with the holding the digital asset in the ETF custody account. If you can even call it that, and getting like the regulators themselves understanding the custody and the risks around custody of the digital asset themselves, and I think that's exactly what has you know been holding up the SEC for very very long uh, with all of the comment letters that we've seen on the POSA on the physical uh, Bitcoin filing. So that's why we went really hard down the route of the of the futures based ETF here, and and obviously the the regulators. Uh, approved the physical digital asset uh, ETFs before the futures, and we were quote unquote novel, and uh, um, so we uh, we had to go down that road, and we uh, uh, you know launched about a month after the um, uh, the physical products themselves or a little bit over a month, and you know from our pay, from our take, we really truly believe that futures is the best place for from this asset class to get exposure. Still, um, we believe that you know. Um, all of the, uh, the market, the efficiency of market making and how an ETF actually works is best through of underlying futures exposure in the ETF. And that's both long and also we, you know, we launched uh, inverse uh, Bitcoin shortly after that because we're giving these things as trading vehicles. And if people want to use them as trading vehicles, um, then we believe that the futures is really the best place to go. And that's why we agree with the SEC in that regard.
2: Well, but let, let's dive into this. So unfortunately, you came out a month after the physically backed ones. Um, and, but whether you're looking at the gold area where the futures gold ETF has 1% of the assets in the physically backed gold ETFs like GLD and IAU, in your case, this one has about 1% of what the physically backed big ETF has in Canada. It's a very almost the exact parallel, which basically shows the same thing. People just want it physically backed. But you're saying that futures are better, um, seems against the grain, like even someone, I know you want to <laughs> want people to use the Bitcoin futures ETF, sure. but like it just seems like nobody would agree with that.
5: Well, one, it, first to market, Eric, right? So if if our uh, Bitcoin right. futures ETF was first to market, you would not be seeing 100 to 1 from an assets perspective. 100%. Sure. Right? Um, it's just underlying Bitcoin exposure that they were going for. And it was who was providing the, the the first and access to it in a liquid vehicle that could be traded on the exchange every day. I mean, we had a closed-end fund uh, here in Canada, or a couple of closed-end funds that had over a billion dollars of assets. And you know they were trading at a 25 30% premium to the net asset value every day. Guess what happened to that premium on the day that a Bitcoin ETF got listed? It's now trading at a 10% discount. Right. Like because the people don't want to be locked up into a a vehicle that they can't trade in and out of on a regular basis. And, you know, when you look at the efficiency of what ETFs do in the marketplace, market makers have to trade this. They have to provide a bid-ask spread and they have to be able to hedge that exposure and actively trade that hedge as they buy and sell units in the marketplace. What are they hedging against any Bitcoin ETF right now? whether it be physical or futures-based. They are using futures because that's the only vehicle that they can trade intraday to hedge their underlying buying and selling activity. And guess what? If you're a futures-based ETF and your market maker is using futures to hedge their exposure, they're getting one-to-one direct contra- you know contraining uh, uh, exposure. When that happens with a, a Bitcoin the digital currency physically backed ETF they're trading futures against it there's gap and there's always going to be gap risk in that regard and you know it is what it is from that perspective and and so we believe that again as the market sort of uh, evolves here and becomes uh, matures from a from a market efficiency perspective in trading Bitcoin there's more Bitcoin products out there we believe that investors will lean towards, where markets are more efficient from a trading perspective and the ETF should trade more efficiently. You know, we can accept futures um, and deliver futures as part of the creation redemption baskets. Again, making it more efficient for the, um, the liquidity providers in the marketplace. So it's, it's a very, okay. very different asset.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
3: I'm not a trader. I'm a normie. Um, Futures isn't something I normally think about touching. Um, So how does this market work? What do I need to know about it? Who lists them? How big of a marketplace are we talking about here? Can you guys break that down for me? Simeon, I'll, I'll start with you.
4: Yeah. So, uh, among the uh, the benefits of of the futures market is the regulation. The uh, the, the futures market uh, is governed by the CME and the CFTC. There is a central clearinghouse that you know ensures that you know trades are not defaulted upon, and that those are really important aspects. Again, we can't be in the mind of the SEC, but we know what the uh, what the advantages are. And exactly to Steve's point, the more that there are. Uh, opportunities for for Bitcoin exposure, the more volume and the more liquidity we see in these markets. But even in and and so you know, simply you're buying a futures contract for what the market thinks the price of Bitcoin would be a month from now. And as we as I mentioned, the tracking of that has been pretty close to spot, but. Everybody likes to talk about roll costs. That's everybody's favorite thing to talk about. It was any second Eric was going to ask me. So I, I'm just, <laughs> I, I will throw a couple of comments I on think- it. before you even ask. He's so upset he didn't get to ask it. So I'll just <laughs> pretend he asked it. So think about this. He's in, in my head. <laughs> in 2020, Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin, I think was up about 305%. If you looked at a strategy that, you know, approximated rolling one month contracts, you would have gotten about 285. So everybody goes, oh my God, there was 20% roll cost. The market was up 305. I mean, the only way there's meaningfully positive roll cost is when market participants think the thing is going up. That's first principles. In jargony terms, the future is the unbiased estimator of the future spot price. So yeah, uh, I mean, if it's up 305 and you got 285, I don't think anybody's going to be so worried about that. In a more normalized environment, it's very likely roll costs would be smaller. And the more of us that get involved in this, the more liquid the stuff is. That being said, I think ultimately there will be many different ways to get exposure. And also to Steve's point, they all come with costs. We know how big that premium and discount is to the thing or things that are trading over the counter. We don't even, it's, it's hard to even get your hands around the opaqueness of the transaction costs if you're trying to get a digital wallet. So there's no free way to get exposure. It's like the stickers on all, on all, the, uh, you know, on all the ETFs. You, know, you, you, you cannot get the exact return of the theoretical index. It doesn't exist.
3: Eric, are you going to try and ask a question about roll costs now?
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> send send, well, it, send uh, it my way, Eric. Send it my way, and I'll, I'll.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Look, I agree. That's a very good point. I mean, you're up to 85. We, we we always say that about the shiny object lane. Nobody cares about fees over there because if you hit it, you're you're you're, you're tripling the S and P like Arc, right? Nobody cares. They charge whatever 75 basis points. Um, So I get it. I think maybe let's put it into proportion of the fact that when the physically backed ETFs, if they were to come out, probably would track more of that upside, but also the downside. So I don't know. It just seems to me that in general, and I'm not, look, futures are a fine way to get exposure uh, to many different areas. Typically, though, if you can get it the physically backed way, people tend to prefer it like we went up in Canada and just discussed that and in gold. Um, but the idea I think is just that humans that are investors generally just want something that tracks the price. You know, that they, they just want the Kelly blue book value. Like just don't complicate this for me. That would be my one pushback on that. But to your point, if there's nothing else in the market, like if Steve's fund had gotten out a month before the physically backed, I think he would have been bigger, had liquidity and been a stronger. So in Simeon's case, let's say these futures ETFs come out, um, and they're out for, well, let, let's just start there. How do you think the SEC is going to approve or allow these ETFs? Are they going to put out like all four or five at once? Will they pick some? How much do you th- attention and assets do you think they'll get relative to, let's say, a physically backed ETF getting introduced, which we think would be $10 billion within a month?
5: Wow. So one, let's look at physical gold versus a digital currency wallet, right? And who custodies that? How is it held? Is there a risk to that underlying asset? Can somebody hack your vault at Fort Knox and remove your gold and sell it somewhere else? This is not Goldfinger anymore, right? But cybersecurity (laughs) and hacking is like, this is something we have to live with for the rest of our lives. And will somebody be able to, at some point in time, hack Gemini Trust and figure out how to take money out of the digital currency ETF that's there? You know what? I don't know. But I'm I'm not going to take that chance. And I'm not, if I'm invested in my gold, physical gold ETF, I know that I'm not going to lose my physical gold anywhere at any time under any circumstances, unless somebody misplaces it, which I don't think can happen either. Because, you know, we have a very, very strong settlement cycle and way of trading gold and physical gold, even gold futures. But with digital currencies, when you're dealing with, you know, exchanges that are getting hacked from time to time, you're dealing with, Custody arrangements, which are getting hacked from time to time, you're dealing with a lot of unknowns, as Simeon was saying, with respect to the actual trading of the you know of the digital Bitcoin. And it'll be very very interesting when sort of we have interim financial statements coming out right now for the physical uh, Bitcoin ETFs here in Canada, and we really don't know that underlying trading costs and custody costs and flow through costs until we get this will be the first public reporting period for those ETFs. So it'll be very, very different from that perspective. I also wanted to say, like also to Simeon's point, when you're looking at the backwardation and contango of, you know, the futures curves for Bitcoin, you know, since the inception of the Bitcoin futures back to 2017, it wasn't really only until like the last 12 months, even less, like 10 months, where we saw this huge sort of, you know, contango effect, which started creating tracking error between sort of BTC one on a long term basis uh, versus uh, spot Bitcoin. And to Simeon's point, like we created a, a five day rolling futures index, and you know, on a one year basis, right now we're about you know thirty five percent behind. Um, you know, that three hundred, uh, you know, three hundred and one percent return. Of BTC one, right? And you know our rolling futures. There's a cost to it, and it's only really been in the last year since Bitcoin has been going straight up from your point of ninety nine dollars to sixty thousand. Something's going to happen during that period from a uh, from a contango perspective in a futures curve. It's just you know reality. But when you normalize it, and when you normalize gold to gold futures, like this is a marketplace where we believe that futures will be again. The best tracking vehicle, because you've got to take the Contango with the backwardation, and as you know, we see Bitcoin slide. The backwardation really fits nicely into uh, uh, allowing us to really make up some of that gap, um, uh, as long as we're fully invested, which is you know what all our ETFs are hoping to be. But I mean, Simeon's might be a little bit different because it's active. Ours is passive and 100% invested at all times. So
3: Simeon. I want to ask you. Um, uh, you know, you coming out just recently, and then all of a sudden, you see all these new uh, uh, filings—handful of them—that that Eric mentioned earlier. I'm sure you've had a chance to look at them. What do you, What do you make of of those um, of those offerings? Yeah,
4: uh, so we have filed for an ETF. Uh, we're in the quiet period, so there isn't much else I can say other than we filed, and uh, this is a this is a rapidly evolving and maturing space. I think when we get to some steady state, there will be multiple ways for investors to get exposure to Bitcoin. And I think perhaps one of the best things that you can do as an investor is try to split up the underlying use case for Bitcoin with the from the alternatives as an investor i think that's really important and it gets lost if you're trying to do this research because you know whether it's the anonymity the functioning of the blockchain uh, the evolution of defi all those things that are part of the underlying value proposition of bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency are are critical to you know what will drive its price over time but you don't need a smelter to invest in gold. So those things are not necessarily the relevant question. The relevant question as more ways are allowed to come to market to get exposure is to ask yourself the questions of, as an investor. Trade-off, the, the, the transaction costs of being in the spot market in the futures market if there is ultimately that choice. The trade-off of being in a 40 act versus a 33 act in terms of your, you know, personal tax positions or your predilection for a K-1. So I think that's what's really important because that can get so lost so fast because you go into the, into the uh, Al Gore's World Wide Web and you you try to figure out what's going on with Bitcoin and all of a sudden you're reading the Satoshi paper and you don't know how that's going to help you. So I think if, if, if there's a piece of, to take away here, as an investor, focus on the relevant distinctions in what it means to you as an investor, leave the underlying use case commentary perhaps a little bit to the side for that, for that evaluation.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
2: Okay, let's take a step back and look at what might transpire. So, you know, we just talked about there's other filings. So here's exactly what Gensler said uh, that everybody has honed in on, which is, quote, I anticipate there will be filings with regard to ETFs under the 40 Act. When combined with the other federal securities laws, the 40 Act provides significant investor protections. Given these important protections, I look forward to the staff's review of such filings, particularly if those are limited to these CME-traded Bitcoin futures. Now, all of the filings, the, the first three filed, including yours, Simeon, Eck, yours, and Invesco, have this language, which says, the fund intes- intends to invest in pooled investment vehicles, including ETFs that invest directly or indirectly in Bitcoin. This, The last two that came in, Valkyrie and um, Galaxy, simply say we're on- only futures. They don't have that... ETFs indirect Bitcoin sentence. Does that matter? And how do you see the the uh, approval working? Do you think they'll approve all five at once? Because when you file 40 act, there's, you're on like a 75 day clock, right? So it seems like the first one filed could be out first. Uh, I don't. Know, just give me your take on all that.
4: I can't really opine on what the SEC might do, which 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 I know you'd love for me to do. I, I we don't know. <laughs> We really don't know. Um, it, it's pretty clear from the language that, you know, Gensler is a fan of, of futures in a 40 act. But at that nuance level, you know, all I can really, you know, r- respond to is you know, uh, we're active and we have that flexibility to manage that cash collateral, collateral in a little bit more flexible
2: ways than maybe some folks who are who are painting that a little bit more narrowly. Steve. The SEC can't harm you. You're up there in Canada. What do you think about that sentence? Do you think that will matter? And he'll prove just the two that said only futures or what's your take? Well,
5: I wish our regulator had the same uh, thought process as Ginsburg, uh, first and foremost, because then I would have been first in marketplace. But that said, um, I, you know, I believe, um, you know, he's really honing in on the fact of, how can they get comfortable from a regulatory perspective around custody and trading of uh, the underlying assets? When this is such a new and, and you know, every day it's changing with respect to how you can access digital currencies or any and and you know how you can hold digital currencies. So um, this is an unregulated cross-border currency um, asset, and it, it, it's just a complete unknown for them. But having the regulated. Uh, CME listed features governed by the CFTC, as Samim was saying. Um, you know, we have full-on margin accounts, segregated margin accounts with a different trust, uh, which is what we have to, had to do with the with our ETF. You know, these are all. I think these are all the comfort levels that is giving the regulator saying, I think we can get there now with the sort of ETF uh, futures based. And I think you know of the I think there's five or six filings now which are futures based. Specifically in the U.S., I believe that they're all going to get approved, um, and I believe that hopefully, I believe the, the SEC will uh, approve them all together. Like if they're going to approve one, they should be approving all of them together, roughly around the same time. So for the people that are on the fence with their their physical ones, um, you know, like the 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 cryptos and the Wise and the First Trust, you know, I think they should be getting their you know futures based filings in. ASAP, so that they can get onto the uh, uh, the train with the rest of the filings, like uh, you know ProShares and and uh, and Galaxy and and Vesco and Van Eck and, and those guys, who I think will lead the charge. If not, then I think they're going to be watching as uh, these you know U.S. issuers get to marketplace with their first uh, future
2: space ETFs. And uh, to your point, uh, in Canada, they allowed this. Bitcoin ETF to come out one day alone, and then they let somebody else come out day two. It was already like too late. It was. So I agree. They probably should approve all at once, given what they saw in Canada. Then then they I think they corrected, and the three Ether ETFs all got approved and uh, allowed to launch the same day, and it was more of an even fight. Correct, um, correct. But that's how, that's how big first the market. Now, back to you, Simeon. Now, you have a mutual fund that's futures, and there's an ETF that uh, let's say the ETFs get filed, I mean, launched. What about capacity? Somebody brought up capacity where they thought, well, maybe the mutual fund was approved because the mutual fund can always stop taking new assets. The ETFs can't. Do you think if there's futures ETFs approved and they really get a lot of flows, is there capacity concerns that you, and you can't close, you know, the ETF to new creations, or I guess you can, but it would just annoy everybody.
4: Yeah, I mean, is it, there's a couple of pieces to that. First, the uh, um, it, it's it's likely that capacity limits is something that will increase and, and uh, uh, ameliorate over time. Uh, so there are limits, two thousand limit on the front month traffic. That's about if you add it all up, it's about four hundred and fifty million dollars in, in today's Bitcoin price. But also remember, we are active, so that gives us that does give us the opportunity around the uh, around the edges to manage that process. So I think it's manageable um you know we would have no intent to convert the mutual fund we have me as i said pro funds and pro shares has we have mutual funds and etfs on the platform so uh yeah you know, we we would anticipate that those would coexist for
0: us
5: i would add to simian's point you can there's there the cme has a limit on the front month that you can own and it also has an overall limit so like we had to build into our prospectus the ability to um go to A a certain limit on the overall fund, and we could go, we could move outside of sort of the the index and we could actively manage the portfolio to the index based on what we were allowed to get exposure to. So, if that meant owning the front month, the second month, the third month contracts, um, so that we were approximating the performance of the front month or the rolling uh, front month index, you know, that's what we had to do. And to Simeon's point, as there are more and more products that are coming to marketplace, Um, You know, there is significantly more trading volume in those underlying Bitcoin futures, which we've seen effectively pick up almost every month since they launched in 2017. Uh, There was a bit of a lull in 2018, but like 2019, 2020, the number of contracts outstanding basically has increased every single month, which is, and it's provided more depth to marketplace, more liquidity for us to be able to trade. And, uh, you know, we have been in discussions with the CME, um, I can openly say, for over two years now to try and get them to move those contract limits and give us exemptions away from those contract limits, and you know because we actually you know licensed the the CME uh, futures um, you know pricing and index that the that they had, um, you know they've been very very open to talk to us about it and understand the the issues and you know it's something that we have to deal with our market makers all the time. But to your point, Eric, you know. Under Canadian law, we have the ability to cap the ETF very, very quickly and easily. And you know, the one thing we don't want to happen though is we don't want this to turn into a closed end fund. Um, you know, we want it to stay an open ended fund that you know people have the. We don't want it trading at a premium if, if it's a closed end fund. It'll never trade at a discount because you they always have the ability. Unit you know, holders always have the ability to sell and redeem. Um, But buying it, if we have no more capacity to add exposure, then it typically will end up trading like a a closed end fund and trading at a premium. We just don't want that. So we're hoping the CME, hoping that everybody, you know, with putting a little pressure on the CME and as that market has become significantly deeper, will relax those uh, individual contract limits that we're uh, up against currently.
3: Steve, how big do you think your product can get then? What do you think the potential is?
5: Well, I mean, we saw, like, if we were first to market list, I'm just going to say hypothetically, like, you know, we saw a billion dollars come in in the first week, right? I mean, like, if we had brought a billion dollars in in the first week um, in US dollars, like, we would have been capped out in the front month contract. We would have been moving into the second
2: month. Um, Wait, wait, wait. Time out, time out. So let's actually, that's fascinating. Let's actually grow this to, because you're using the same futures. So how... How much could Bitcoin futures ETF as a whole, as a group, have in assets, US dollars, before you're capped out?
5: Any one fund is capped, right? But multiple funds are
2: not. Oh, I see. Okay. So, but a one fund would be a billion. One fund could be a billion dollars. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It could be a little bit
5: different for pro shares between, because the, one having a fund and one having an ETF, and both of them, I don't believe that both of them, from my own personal view, I don't believe both of them have the ability to go up to that two thousand friend month contract limit um, uh, under the, the way that I've read the CME rules. But I could be mistaken, and I'm, and I'm not Simeon's lawyer, and I'm not going to give him advice there. But you know, it's an entity uh, limit per se, and to the extent okay, that gotcha, and you know, one of the issues that we were running into is. The trading partners. When it comes to the, you know, the, there, there's a limited number of uh, FCMs in the U.S. that are willing actually to, to trade uh, the Bitcoin futures, and then the margin around those is significantly different. Like when you're putting up, you know, five percent margin on a, on a gold futures contract, we're putting up forty two to forty five percent on a Bitcoin futures contract. Very, very different way of of operations for us in managing these underlying portfolios. The one really nice thing that's happened, though, you know, recently this year, though, is the addition of the mini Bitcoin features. So that uh, in itself has actually allowed us to really uh, give us the ability to, to fine tune the exposure in the ETS to making sure that we're um, almost 100% matching all the time. So, you know, we have up to, you know, one one Bitcoin feature, one one big Bitcoin feature is five contracts. And if we're able to add in, a you know, a, a mini contract. To round out the uh, exposure where we need to, um, it's uh, been a lot better for us to to manage that way.
3: And, and Simeon, how, how how about you? How big do you think your product can get? And then how would that compare if the if the ETF version were approved?
4: Yeah, I don't I don't want to throw a specific number out there because again, because we're active, that gives us a little bit of an ability to to manage around if there's enough liquidity. To put a little bit past the front month to you know to to think cleverly about how uh and effectively we could uh we could manage the uh the 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 collateral and the margin to get a little bit more exposure so it's it's a little bit softer when when you're in uh when when you're on the active side
5: okay they could also own etfs inside so if they get capped out Correct. on a pro funds basis uh for the maximum number of futures contracts they own they can easily backfill with other either futures-based ETFs or even some of the the, uh, digital currency-backed ETFs here in Canada.
3: Okay, so this is fascinating. We went way down some wormholes. I want to actually just back up for a second. and, And Simeon, I'll just ask you, how hard is it to actually just compete with like Robinhood on this front, like I can just open Robinhood as a consumer, you know, the day trading Yahoo, if you will, and like just buy some BTC. Like, how hard is it to compete with that?
4: Oh, I, I don't think it's hard to compete because I think it's a, as an old mentor of mine once said, "Let a thousand flowers bloom." There will be multiple ways to get exposure to Bitcoin that that will be uh, that will have pros and cons, and that will have. Uh, have advantages for different constituencies uh there's a heck of a lot of people out there that uh would not be would not be pursuing their exposure the way you described but man when you tell them wait there's a mutual fund oh that's pretty clean uh so i i think i think there's plenty of room for uh for lots of ways to get exposure And, and and there was certainly from our perspective an underserved or not served at all constituency that'll find the 40 act vehicle vehicle to be uh, quite the uh, attractive alternative.
3: All right. To close, Simeon, if we've asked Steve this before, although I can't remember what it was and I'll probably ask him again. We always ask folks, what is your favorite ETF ticker that is not your own? Favorite ETF ticker that is not my own?
4: Well, I should, should have uh, told you
5: to prepare, Simeon. Oh, I didn't.
4: I, I, I thought I was going to get a list of the secret questions. At the end. <laughs> Look, how can you go wrong with GLD? So that's, that's pretty. There you go. <laughs> and,
3: and Steve, have you changed yours? I, I do. I, ha- I have a new
5: favorite now.
4: And it's because we were okay. looking
3: at
5: the space specifically, but, uh, uh sick c s i c k is my new favorite uh, ticker especially one. from the u.s etf so you
3: know, amazingly i don't the, think we've had that
2: one before 3x bear yeah,
5: Healthcare. you know it's uh, uh it's it's it, it's it is just totally sick so
2: I, I like it well then that that one's got a good uh mirrored pair with cure i always like tickers that are uh, also great bands like REM, Cure. There's a couple of them. There used to be Bono. uh, That was a Latin America bond fund, but that closed. But yeah, good choice, Steve. Inspiring. Triple leveraged. Wow, look at you. What are you doing in your personal account these days?
5: (laughs) (laughs) I'm playing the leveraged marijuana. That's uh, as well as inverse Bitcoin. Those are my favorites that I like to trade daily.
3: All right, Simeon, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions.
5: Joel, Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for having us. here. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balcinos. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Henriksen. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ.
1: at cuttereconomicforum.com.